Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 317 of the Fun with Cars Motorsports Podcast, or episode 4 of 2022. I'm Robin Warner, and today I'm joined by the man who just missed out on that second Haas seat because he's an American, Christopher Roche. Hey, Chris. Hello, Robin. You uh, second-guessing that citizenship uh, now that uh, now that it eluded you again? Well, I'm dual nationality, but not one of them is not Danish. So, uh, yeah, maybe that was one of the key criteria. Yeah, you had to have an ish. You had to have an ish as part of your name. I, I, but English sorts it. Duh, darn. Yeah, maybe th- that was an oversight on Haas's part. <laughs> well, I'm not Russian, which definitely helped. <laughs> <laughs> it is Wednesday morning, March 16th, and we're going to talk about the second Formula One test in Bahrain as well as the latest Formula One news. And I interviewed IndyCar driver Simon Paginode of Shank Racing. But Chris, where would you like to start? Well, let's start with the big has announcement. Uh, so Nikita Mazepan is out. He's been uh, asked to move on. And we did speculate on who might replace him in the last podcast. And neither of us named uh, this individual. But Kevin Magnussen is back. And uh, he's dumped his contract with uh, Ganassi and Peugeot, and he is back in Formula One on a multi-year deal um, at Haas, which is, I think, remarkably good news for everybody. I I was really pleased with this because he really was a strong performer at Haas uh, in the multiple years that he'd been there. And I thought really, really did a good job to get the best out of the car. I think it was 95% financial that led him out of the car. So the fact that Haas came back to him and said, obviously, we always respected your talent, and now we're in a place where that's more important than the money. <laughs> I don't know if that's quite the right way to say it, but uh, I, I'm thrilled to see it because you know I think Magnussen is going to be a higher-rated driver than uh, Giovinazzi would have been. And he was the other kind of established, uh, recently retired Formula One guy that we were discussing. And we're now, we now have a lineup in the Haas team that is full-on second-generation drivers. So it's very cool to have Michael Schumacher's son against Jan Magnussen's son uh, in the seat. I think that's cool. Yeah, definitely. I, I went back and re-reviewed uh, Kevin's history at Haas. I mean, he obviously raced for them for four seasons. He finished ninth in 2018, uh, with the highlight being a couple of fifth-place finishes. He's got a, he's got two fastest laps to his name in Formula One. I, I did not know that until I, I checked it out. So, uh, you know, he, he and Grosjean were were you know definitely capable of of. Uh, taken advantage of a, of a decent Haas car when it when it was such and uh, a thing and um, it was a shame when they both got pushed out and I think it's great that they've they've sort of reversed at least half of that decision and and it's great that it's not back for just one year or a few races this is supposedly a multi-year deal so it's a long-term commitment from both sides to really try and get Haas back uh, back into sort of the you know fighting fighting for the odd podium or uh, or, or scrapping for points and and back in the you know in the thick of the midfield and it'll give it'll give Mick Schumacher a real yardstick with which to judge himself. I mean we know Kevin Kevin's pretty quick 
uh, at times, and he's a good racer. And so, um, so this will be a much, much keener level of competition for Mick for this season and beyond. Yeah. Uh, so I totally agree with you. I think it was the right decision and kind of just really had to be done that Haas did a multi-year deal with Kevin because it, it's, you know, he can't just be pushed around, especially if he's if he's at being asked to be released from two different contracts, one from a major manufacturer in Peugeot, and obviously Chip Ganassi is no small operation. So it's like, look... I was able to keep my career going after you guys dumped me, but I, you know I can't just keep jumping back and forth at every little opportunity. So uh, Haas absolutely did the right thing, and I couldn't agree more. I think that Magnussen might not be considered a future Formula One champion in many people's eyes, but he was certainly definitely deserving of a Formula One drive. I think he was definitely plenty capable to keep his seat. So that is going to be something that Mick can feel a lot more confident about. How is he stacking up to the Formula One uh, community as opposed to um, someone that was there for financial reasons as much as anything else? Right. I think that the aspect of this deal that did amuse me was, you know, Kevin, after a very tough 2020 when the house wasn't that competitive, you know, basically, when he was informed that he was being dumped on on fairly, you know, decent uh, terms, right? They, they, there was certainly no animosity between Kevin and Haas when he left. But I think he was a bit surprised after such a tough season uh, that he was unceremoniously sort of pushed out for financial reasons. And he basically said, well, you know, what's the point of Formula One anyway? I don't have a competitive car. I can't compete for wins. So I'm, I'm more or less happy to move on and try and, and try and win stuff. And, you know, he did uh, do a very good job of securing some really good uh, sports car uh, seats. You know, he raced in Le Mans with his dad last season, which was very, very cool. And then, obviously, he was out uh, at Daytona in, in, in Ganassi's sports car um, and, and was planning to, to compete in the World Endurance Championship this year with Peugeot. So, you know, he'd, he'd found himself some pretty decent, you know, top-line drives outside of Formula One. But as soon as Formula One came a calling again, he, he dumped them like a hot stone and was like, "Yep, yeah, I'm back." I mean, I just. Uh, I mean, you know. and I, I'll, I mean, why can you? You can't argue with that, though, right? I mean, it's you, it, you it can't, is. but it's wonderful to see, isn't it? That he just, despite all that, what he was trying to make his head, you know, justify being pushed out of Formula One, his heart just wanted to be in it all the time, which is great. <laughs> right? Of course, of course. Yeah, and you know, to uh, Roman uh, Grosjean's credit, you know he's obviously landed on his feet. He's got a full-time IndyCar seat with one of the big teams in Andretti Autosport, and he sent a tweet, uh, very happy for Kevin Magnussen to get his uh, single-seater career kicked back on. And honestly, I think that was as likely a scenario as anything that uh, in a couple years' time. Kevin Magnuson was going to end up in an Indy car. I think that would have been the most likely scenario for him were this not to happen. So uh, I, I'm definitely, I liked watching Magnuson as a racer. I thought he was uh, exciting, exciting driver. You could really tried hard, really push the limits, made uh, everything he could out of the opportunities he had. So I think he's great to have back in the sport. Uh, I'm very happy for that. And he, and he jumped right in. He was, he was right there. Once uh, Haas was able to make the Bahrain test, he was he was putting in 
he was putting in competitive times pretty much right away. Yeah, exactly. He um, he, he got back up to speed pretty pretty quickly. So that's you know good sign for this weekend. And we saw three days uh, at Bahrain, the second official Formula One test. And we saw a lot of new cars all over again <laughs> compared to the first test. And we saw some teams really struggling. Um, one thing I want to talk about is uh, some of these early attempts to solve the porpoising issue. And it seems like the teams are trying some mega like freight train stiff spring rates <laughs> on the cars to see if that could sort it out. It's been fascinating to watch. Yeah, it's and it's certainly different teams are in a different stage of, of getting on top of that problem. And it sounds like it's going to be very track dependent because Bahrain um, with the sand and, and some of the, the, the bumpy nature of the circuit is quite a different problem to Barcelona. So what might work at one track may not be so effective at another. I mean, I guess the big news was right at the start of the test, Mercedes rolled out a car that didn't really resemble anything that they'd run at Barcelona with this really dramatic and tiny side pod arrangement um, with these vertical air intakes that uh, and, and the exposed side impact structure, which really drew an enormous amount of attention. And it, it was a different car, and Mercedes struggled to get it to work properly uh, around Bahrain. Um, so they seemed to be in a bit of, bit of trouble. They, they, they were one of the teams that were running very stiff suspension in order to try and control the porpoising, and then the, you know, the car lacked compliance and was struggling over the curb. So certainly Mercedes don't have a setup yet that... Uh, that's going to bode well for a competitive performance in Bahrain, which opens the door to, to some other teams. But certainly the, the concept around Mercedes car looks super aggressive. And, um, you know, if they can start to get it to work properly, could, could uh, pose a real threat to the rest of the, the, the teams. Well, th that's exactly right. And, but one thing that's playing into all these things uh, is minimum weights. And uh, Formula One, this is the heaviest Formula One car we've had in a long, long time. Uh, and the minimum weight was just increased again. I think I've got these numbers right to 795 kilograms. As I understand it, the rumor is most of the teams are actually above that minimum weight. They cannot get their cars light enough <laughs> for that. So we've now got we've now got Formula One cars that are. Uh, heavier than Indy cars and approaching Lamar prototype weights. Yeah, and it sounds like they're not too nimble around the slow stuff where the, the Venturi tunnels can't really provide much downforce. So they, they don't look great in slow corners. They look super impressive on medium and, and fast corners. But uh, but yeah, it'd be an interesting comparison, wouldn't it, to, to compare IndyCar and Formula One um, corner times around slow, slow turns. I guess we might get an opportunity to do that at some point. Um, do they both go to Austin this year? Is IndyCar running at Austin? There might be a couple uh, no, of corners. I, I, no, no, I don't they, think. They drop Coda off. Think, yeah, I think Texas for IndyCar is now ovals again. Mm, okay. So I'm not sure if we have a track where they'll both run on the same track and configuration where you could make that sort of corner-by-corner uh, corner comparison. But, it, it, yeah. It, it is interesting. These cars are going to be quite different. They should be more raceable. So I don't think uh, that's going to hurt the show much, but it, they're, they're going to look different. The, the, you know, the thing with the Formula One car, especially when you see it trackside, is 
to just the staggering speed through any type of corner historically. Um, so it sounds like this year's car may be a little bit of a mixed bag, but uh, still good fun, I'm sure. Oh, yeah. But, you know, there is just something about the fact that these were 600 kilogram cars with driver and everyone, everything in it. And now that's gone up by nearly 200 kilograms. So we're talking, mm-hmm. what, 430 pounds, 420 pounds heavier than, well, a generation ago anyway. Uh, that's kind of a shocking number to hear. Well, everything gains weight over time, Robin. You should know that. <laughs> <laughs> I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I haven't read too much uh, from the drivers to to say that the weight is a, is an issue for them in terms of the actual raceability of the cars. But uh, I'm sure it does seem directionally incorrect for Formula One, doesn't it? That they're just getting so so heavy. But then they justify it based on you know additional safety and, and an attempt to to make to clean the clean the cars up with the hybrid systems. Um, and of course, the the bigger wheels have, uh, you know, I don't know about you, but the bigger wheels obviously add weight. Um, you have less of a tire wall, therefore you get you less uh, you get less of the springing action of of the tire and wheel combination. Right. Um, so you know, and I think the expectation is that the compounds should last better. But right now, it's not universally positive. The the move to the eighteen inch rim. Uh, and and so that's certainly driving up the driving up the weight. I think aesthetically, it 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 doesn't really look. I, I didn't mind the old thirteen inch rims myself. So uh, aesthetically, I, I don't yeah. I don't think it, it's a game changer. So I mean, those are some of the decisions that are driving that mass increase. And uh, I guess Ross and his team will have to figure out ways to to reverse that trend. Otherwise, you know, it'll just keep creeping up, and then we'll have one ton cars, metric ton cars, which in a few seasons, which would not be ideal. Right. Yeah. No, I totally agree. Now, there is just, it seems, you know, cars have been getting bigger and heavier in, you know, the general automotive world as well. And that's always been the counter argument is that they've also become much more sophisticated, much safer, and uh, just more advanced. And, you know, even even lower trimmed cars these days offer things like wireless smartphone charging, Bluetooth capability, touchscreen uh, interfaces for the center console and on and on. So there's there's this increasing minimum standard of what you expect in your own daily driver. And to a certain extent, I suppose that, you know, I hope that we're not seeing touchscreens on, uh, on the <laughs> F1 cars so they have nav and et cetera. But, you know, this, the trend follows just generally. Um, and there is something to be said about electrification we're having monumental amounts of torque in at rpm levels that we never had in the past and so the overall capability of the car is incredibly high but weight is a penalty but we seem to be better at managing that weight at the same time yeah i I think uh the question the question for everyone is going to be how are these new generation cars gonna gonna behave how how good is the racing are we gonna we're gonna start to be able to see cars follow each other more closely? Um, are we going to be able to wean ourselves off DRS and artificial overtaking measures? Um, and the, the early reports are that it does, that the, the changes to the aero 
the way that these cars perform aerodynamically is helping the, uh, the, the close-following vehicle to stay in turns and therefore improve the passability uh, or passing opportunities. So that's a good thing. So I think we'll overlook the mass creep in, in the name of better racing. And hopefully uh, this season and the first race this weekend, we'll, we'll start to uh, demonstrate that. Yeah, absolutely. And Charles Leclerc was actually quite positive. He said, uh, brief interview I saw from him, he said that the, in the one to three second range, it was uh, better. It was easier to follow behind. In the half second to one second range, it felt about the same as last year. But this was critical. He said, in the half second or less following distance, when you're really getting tight, he said it was much, much better. And that means if you still feel like you have got a decent car underneath you when you're following that closely, that we have potential for a lot more passing opportunities. And that was probably the single most positive comment I've heard yet about 2022 Formula One, and it came from Charles Leclerc. Yep, all positive. So obviously the the time's still hard to read. There was variation in when cars were running, has got to run later in the day because of uh, their delay in starting the test due to uh, uh, shipment delays that were, were not, weren't their fault. But so you've got, to, you've got to have the caveat of time of day, fuel variations, the different tyre compounds. But in terms of headline times, uh, you know, Red Bull were the quickest with Max at the wheel, uh, followed by Ferrari, Alpine up there in third with Fernando. And then uh, it was Mercedes, Alfa Romeo, Alfa Tauri, Haas, McLaren, Aston Martin and Williams. Interesting order. I, I guess um, there were some teams that struggled. Uh, McLaren had brake issues throughout the test and poor old Daniel uh, has caught COVID, so didn't really participate. He will be back for the Grand Prix this weekend. Um which is good okay, news. Okay, because that, that was the question. He, he, his participation in uh, was not guaranteed at first. Right, but I think the McLaren posted just this morning that he's now returning negative tests uh, results, so um, he will be definitely racing. So that's good for him. But, I mean, obviously, you know, one of his issues last year was, was the brakes, and that was where he was losing time to his teammate Lando Norris, um, and, and he's lost some running in this year's car, which is significantly different. Uh, and uh, so not, not ideal preparation for uh, Daniel, but at least he's going to be uh, starting, starting the season uh, on time. Uh, and Williams he's older, had so bigger, presumably, I suppose, if we're just going to follow <laughs> the same theme of the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't think we've seen the release of the individual driver weights, but that, that, they used to. I remember they used to. I, Nigel Mansell always used to be the heaviest driver back in the early nineties, right? Which right. was well, which was borne out by his, by the fact he couldn't fit in the McLaren that was engineered for him. <laughs> well, what I mean, what was it? I mean, he had his morning donut and coffee or something. I mean, or donut, coffee, and cigarette or something. I mean, it seems like he would make a great stereotypical cop. Nigel Mansell would, but um, there is... This was after a year in the US, of course, so 93 (laughs) was in the States, returned back to Europe and couldn't fit the car anymore. Is there a correlation? I don't know. No, I I can't think. I would think he lost weight from all the, uh, you know, fresh fruits and vegetables Uh, So that they serve at McDonald's. uh, There's a minimum driver weight as well of 80 kilograms. And uh, what what I heard 
I think this was the F1 Nation podcast. They're like, all the drivers are going to meet that, no problem. Right. There's all these different segments of weight and uh, where you fall in. So the the driver the driver must account for at least 80 kilograms of the weight. It sounds like all the drivers themselves will be under that and be ballast somehow. I suppose they'll have like uh, those like juicy sweatpants and uh, <laughs> add a little something there because that would be the lowest center point of the car that they could add weight. Right? I'm, th- I'm thinking about this correctly, aren't I? So um, just keep I don't think the ballast for... has to be applied to the driver, does it? It just has to be somewhere on the car. Oh, oh, okay. I was I was going to say, look for some juicy driving suits and uh, <laughs> <laughs> see what happened. Um, but anyway, yeah, it, it, it the, the the times are what they are. But it seemed like in terms of the ability to consistently run laps and run to the program, it does seem like Ferrari is in a really good place. Well, we just ran through the the, the best times from day three, but the some of the the pundits who were at the track and got to obviously watch watch the car circulating and talk about and, and look at the the length of runs and obviously uh, equate that with the compound. That the running order, the expected run or, running order, is as follows: So Red Bull is expected to be top, just pipping Ferrari. Uh, Mercedes third, McLaren fourth, and then this is a, interesting. Haas was tipped as being the fifth fastest team, mm-hmm. ahead of Aston Martin, Alpha Tauri, Alpine, Alfa Romeo, and Williams. Um, so they did uh, highlight that uh, the, the middle order is, is very congested, and it's really hard to split them. But uh, you know, Ferrari have had a really strong winter season um but you know with the red bull upgrade that that came on day three they were very quick immediately with that upgrade and uh the times were were very easy to achieve so that did look ominous for for round one for sure red bull got into a sweet sweet spot very quickly um they have a pretty good compliant car but they can run run it fairly low and, and achieve the downforce levels with the new uh tunnels so um, but yeah, Ferrari looks strong, no doubt about it. They uh, both Charles and, and Carlos seem very happy with the car. They ran reliably. The new uh, power unit seems strong. So Ferrari looked to be back at the sharp end, which is uh, which is good. Yeah, and uh, how concerned are you about Mercedes' pace? Because it seemed like they were struggling uh, with braking uh, a bit as well. So you know, just. Their upgrades maybe weren't quite as switched on as, as they'd hoped. And then on top of that, there was a lot of brake lockup. Yeah, so I think what the, the point that Gary Anderson was making when he was analysing Mercedes's woes is that the, the the car was so different from Barca that that you, you weren't able to, you know, you're solving a whole bunch of new problems. You basically got a different animal that you now need to almost start over with resolving the porpoising issues. Um so ultimately, the performance may be stronger, but maybe having such a significant upgrade package for the second test was was actually a you know partial step backwards, um, and that you know they're still trying to understand how to really get the best out of out of that that new aero package, um, and they were running very stiff as we mentioned, but that leads to other issues. So finding the right setup and, and getting on top of the porpoising is going to be key for Mercedes uh, in round one and. But there's still a lot of people who think that they might be sandbagging bagging a little bit, uh, as they have done in, in prior uh, pre-seasons, and that they may be more competitive than some of the drivers were 
were suggesting they would be. I mean, both uh, Lewis and George were indicating that, you know, that was the real pace and they weren't going to be able to compete from wins straight, straight at the start of the season. But not everyone was convinced. I mean, Carlos was saying that from the, the GPS traces, they could, they could kind of see what Mercedes were up to. And so they, they got the impression that they weren't f- fully showing their hand at this early stage. Do you think it's possible that Mercedes was not sandbagging, but juicy driver suiting? <laughs> Can we make that a thing? I, would, I desperately would love to make that a thing. Uh, a juicy okay. drivey suiting. Juicy driving suiting? Juicy driver suiting? What, what's, what's the best variation here? I think you're on your own with that, Robin. I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna move on. <laughs> I'm gonna, yeah, yep. I'm gonna, and also, uh, by the way, I, I, I would like to update. I would like the American Formula One team to be sponsored by Rishi Tees, Rishi Tees, because it's a fine. I want, I want a fine quality tee to represent the U.S. team, not, not the big commercial outlets that are. Uh, more similar to soft drinks. So it'll be Juicy Clothing Brand, Rishi Tees, and uh, American Drivers. It's it's going to be fantastic. So, um, but has fifth. I mean, this could be the most remarkable comeback uh, in some time with Kevin back at the wheel of a has that could potentially be qualifying in the top 10. And uh, with, with some early season unreliability, he could stick it on the podium. What a comeback story that would be. Kevin Magnuson is a second a lap compared to Mazepin, right off the bat. Yeah, absolutely. And that will be a yardstick that the second Mick Schumacher is behind, he'll push. So it will speed up Mick Schumacher, whatever his pace is. And uh, so, yeah, I mean, that's a big performance gain for Haas. And also, I mean, their car last year was horrid. I mean, I don't think anyone would argue with that, including including Haas. So, you know, it'd be good to see that uh, they were able to find something that is giving them a solid competitor once again. And they still have that uh, close partnership with Ferrari. We're seeing Ferrari do really well. So you have a car that Haas developed on their own much more. They are trying to separate themselves from the Dallara and be more in-house on that side of things. Still maintain their technical partnership with Ferrari. The Ferrari seems to be in really in a really good place, so yeah, they have a lot of potential. Yeah, I mean, I feared for Haas if if having written off twenty twenty one to focus on on the rule changes in this year, and they still delivered a, a really slow car. You'd you'd wonder if the team was sort of really viable moving forward. But if they if it's paid off and they're now you know back in the thick or at the lead of the midfield, then then it was worth going through all that pain last year and, and, and get them sort of back to where historically they've been since they entered the sport. So, uh, and again, of course, with the new rules, um, they, they have more time in the wind tunnel. They have more time with the computational fluid dynamic modeling. So this should be, this should, they should have an advantage this season, right? Over all the teams, every single team on the grid, you know, they finish behind every other team. So they should get more, more aero time, and and they you know if they use it well, then they should be able to move up the grid. So so yeah. definitely, you know, promising signs for them. Yeah, no, I I completely agree. Um, so what do you think we're going to see? Who do you think is going to win the race next weekend? I, I mean, it does look like you know Max and Red Bull 
uh, probably going to take the win. Based if if those times and Bahrain test uh, performance overall can be believed, then it does look like Max is uh, is going to be in a very strong position starting the season. But uh, but we shall see. I mean, there's so many interesting things that are going to play out. I mean, you know, with Ferrari being competitive, um, that might might make some really interesting first few lap racing um and with charles and carlos both trying to probably get a uh, a good result straight off the bat and and neither of them will will uh, shy away from going wheel to wheel with max so we could have some really exciting first few laps and then i i wouldn't discount either lewis or george i mean they'll they'll certainly extract everything that the mercedes can give them in the first round so you know it's going to be it's going to be uh, and hopefully sergio will have moved on a little bit and we'll be closer to Max's ultimate pace. So we'll have both Red Bulls up there. So hopefully we'll have six good cars really going for it and, um, and some good racing. But yeah, my, my suspicion is Max is probably going to win round one. I think that Charles Leclerc is going to win round one. Cool. And I think we'll see both Ferraris on the podium because Carlos is so darn good, so darn consistent that if Charles is there, Carlos will not be far behind. So that is wow. my prediction. Yeah. Yeah. So that's a 1-3 or a 1-2 for Ferrari? It is either or. I'm I'm not going to okay. commit quite that far. And who's the third driver going to be? I think it will be a Mercedes. They've wow. been they've been <laughs> juicy driver suiting and uh I just I think I think they're going to let it loose in Bahrain. So what's going to happen to the Red Bulls this weekend then? No points. They are going to crash each other. Pierre Gasly is going to take out Max Verstappen. <laughs> and then Sonoto is going to run into Perez. And there'll be a nice long conversation over Red Bulls before, <laughs> before Abu Dhabi. So, well, you heard not it Abu Dhabi, first, Saudi folks. Arabia. Robin's either wide of the mark or bag on. We shall discuss that <laughs> this time next week. Well, they, um, they, after all, my middle name is the Oracle. Uh, <laughs> But it's not actually. Uh, but it's it, it's not just Formula One that's been making some news, and it's not just Formula One that's got a race coming up this weekend. Oh, oh, oh sorry, I've got to stop you. No, I've got to stop you there. We oh, have to man. talk. We have to finish <laughs> Formula One news yet. New safety car rules, Robin. Oh, just got oh, just no. got dropped today. So remember oh, that. Please, this is the, this is the juiciest driver suit we've been we've been holding out. Go for it. So, remember, the FIA did nothing wrong in Abu Dhabi last year. Michael Massey did everything right. They, it was spot-on perfection, yeah. Absolutely, they've admitted nothing. And yet, they've decided to change the regulations surrounding safety car deployment. Coincidence. So, Coincidence. <laughs> so, lap cars. So, when the safety car uh, is circulating and you have lap cars, now all the lapped runners have to unlap themselves before you could restart the race. So no matter what, that. no matter what, all of the oh, lap runners man. have to be able to unlap themselves. Not just ones that the race director fancies, not just ones that might <laughs> spice up the show, all of them. And uh, interestingly enough, they haven't amended the rule that says that the safety car will come in at the end of the following lap after all the lap runners have unlapped themselves. Now, that rule wasn't followed in Abu Dhabi. But it's still in the regulations and presumably will be followed in the future. So um, interesting <sighs> clarification on the eve of the start of the 22 season. Uh, it's as close as we're going to get to admission from, from the FIA that they, uh, they dropped the ball. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They, uh, they dropped the, 
juicy driver's suit right on their foot is what they did. <laughs> oh, dear Lord. <laughs> <laughs> it is true that Formula One is definitely going to be exciting to watch. There's been a lot of changes going on for what was a, a very exciting, if not quite controversial, season end of 2021. But I'm also quite excited to see... How IndyCar is progressing. We had a fantastic race in St. Petersburg, Florida, and now they're going to be racing around the one and a half mile oval in Texas on the same weekend as Formula One races in Bahrain. IndyCar's got some news as well. Chris, would you like to start there? Sure. Um, obviously, we've got an oval coming up. Texas, the XPL 375 is an oval race. And we have, we did talk about this uh, after we reviewed the first round of the IndyCar season, but Jimmy Johnson will be out racing uh, a full season and he will be racing on the ovals, which I think is um, is a really good decision because obviously, you know, he spent most of his career in NASCAR racing on ovals. So it makes sense to bring that experience and, and skill to that uh, type of format in IndyCar. So it will be fascinating to see if he's significantly more competitive this weekend on the oval. Uh, he's also been backed by a pretty heavyweight name. Alonso Jr. Uh, thinks that Jimmy can be a regular top five finisher. Once he you know, just gets on top of his current woes, he thinks it'll be like a light switch being flicked and Jimmy will be regularly in the top five. So big, that's a big statement from Alonso Jr., uh, obviously with a lot of pedigree from a great... Uh, uh, Two-time Indy 500 champion. And one, one of the great American racing families, right? So, uh, so that's big backing for Jimmy. So that will hopefully um, add to his impetus for this weekend. And we'll see, we'll see if he can really start to, to get uh, take the fight to the front of the field. Yeah. Now, Al Lunser Jr. has not been right about everything in his uh, <laughs> racing career. So let's just let's not let's not quite set it in stone. But it is, I mean, Jimmy Johnson has been getting a lot of support from a lot of big names. Um, Scott Dixon was supportive. Uh, Scott Pruitt uh, was supportive. Another another American driver that's, you know, raced and won all over the place. And, uh, you know, just we're adding just more names to the list in Al Unser Jr. I would love it if he was right. I would love it, but I'm not, it's not gaining i'm not i'm not beaming with confidence here so i think i think we all kind of get that indycar is very competitive there's a lot of good drivers the cars are challenging to drive and that if you've not raced an open wheel car on some of these tricky road and, and street courses then it, it there's a steep learning curve i think we all understand that and Jimmy's struggles last year, which which he seems to be getting on top of, he, he certainly was more competitive in St. Pete um, this this season. Um, I think, you know, but we still understand there's a long there's a long road there. But if he struggles to the same degree on ovals, I think that would be more surprising, certainly for me, and I would think at the wider community of racing fans, don't you think? Because, uh, uh, you know, I do, and yet. Uh, a way an IndyCar carries itself around an oval is different than a NASCAR in terms of downforce levels and uh, managing traffic because you have fenders versus not having fenders. So I agree with you, but there are some critical differences that might make the Jimmy Johnson explosion not as strong as maybe some are guessing. But I mean, he's an oval specialist, really. 
I mean, he's spent most of his career racing on ovals, and he's up against guys who, most of them, come from from road courses. That's their background. So you would think he would have an advantage, even if a diff- even in a different type of car. You, you got to believe that that would help him. So it'll be for me well, fascinating. It couldn't hurt. Goes. It can't hurt. And it, I mean, right. he one thing that Jimmy Johnson has definitely done very well has he's managed everyone's expectations. So a decent result in an oval is going to be a win for Jimmy Johnson. I mean, they might even put him on the podium. So uh, it's like you know. First, second, third, and Jimmy Johnson. Uh, <laughs> hey, you were on the lead lap. Here's a trophy. Like, I, if he has a better than usual result, even if it's still not remarkable, I think people are going to celebrate that. That's my point, in all sincerity. But there is one driver that I'm going to be looking at very closely. I've been a big fan of his for a long time, and uh, I've been lucky enough to meet him a couple times. He's always been a gentleman. That man is Simon Paginode. He is now uh, driver of the number 60 Meyershank Racing Indy car. And his new teammate, Elio Castroneves, is kind of a reunification of sorts, uh, as they were both Penske drivers in recent history. But I had a real nice chat with him, and I want to share that with you guys right now. Simon Paginode, driver of the number 60 Meyershank Racing Indy car. Thank you so much for joining us uh, to talk about your career and uh, what you have coming for 2022 well thank you for having me it's uh it's an exciting year you know it's a lot of unknown a lot of new things um, i feel very refreshed and, and ready for the challenge it's it's a big challenge it seems like we've got one of the most competitive and full indycar fields we've had in a long long time and uh, you are meeting this new deep field um, with a brand new team and uh, in a way, a new teammate, but in a way, definitely not a new teammate. So, but I want to quickly go, you've had one of the most interesting careers in motorsports. I think I would presume that you were originally formula one bound. Would, would that be correct when you were growing, when you were racing in France? Well, yes, you know, it was as a kid, uh, when you grew up there, um, you know, Formula One's the, the biggest racing sport. I I saw my first race was the 24 Hours of Le Mans. The first race I ever saw, I was six years old, was my dad. And we, we just sat on the Musan corner, and um, it was amazing. Uh, but certainly the passion that already started from the fight between Ayrton Senna and Alain Prost uh, in those years in the early 90s, um, and I... I dreamt about being a race car driver. So I had a dream of Formula One for sure, but my biggest uh, desire was to be a race car driver of, of any sort. Yeah, sure, sure. And of course, uh, you know, Alan was one of the best race car drivers of all time, uh, let alone one of the best French race car drivers. So, uh, and you've had a lot of wonderful French drivers to look up to over the years. Uh, I was a fan of Olivier Panis. Uh, yes. as an example um but you actually ended up going coming here stateside in 2006 to race atlantics and then jumped into the champ car world series in 2007 and participated in that so you've been involved in indycar since uh 2007 but then you kind of took a turn to sports cars and had several years in sports cars 
which did in fact, I don't know if they were connected or coincidental, that led you to um, a factory Peugeot drive at 24 hours of Le Mans. Mm-hmm. And yeah. yeah, please. Oh, no, it's, it's, it's just, I just love to go back to memory lane like this. It's, uh, it's been an incredible career. I've had uh, tough times. These choices were made because of lack of opportunities, quite frankly. I, uh, you know, was on the, on the route to uh, try Formula One. And uh, at the time, Red Bull was uh, the main um, way to go to Formula One for a driver. And uh, French drivers uh, were not backed by Red Bull because the government didn't say Red Bull in France. Um, so, <laughs> uh. Unfortunately, bad timing for me, but um, I was fighting against all the Red Bull drivers. Um, and then I had to make a decision um, just before GP2, basically, uh, Formula 2 now. And I uh, decided to come to the U.S. with the help of Sebastian Baudet, who was the king at the time in Chemka. Yeah, and, he won four championships in a row. I think it was yeah. 2000 through 2003, or maybe 01 yeah. to 04. It was somewhere in there. Yeah, amazing. And then uh, I decided to come to uh, Chemka Atlantic, and that's what started my career in the U.S. Yeah, yeah. And once you got here, obviously you stayed, and you ended up back in IndyCar in 2011. And then I'll just really quickly go through this because we need an hour to <laughs> do it all. Yeah, yeah. But uh, Indy, back in IndyCar in 2011, Penske in 2015 – championship in 2016 indianapolis 500 in 2019 and now we're here at Meyershank racing and obviously it was a whole lot in between but i'm just i wanted to like quickly get that overview so you could tell me what was the adaption period to american racing versus european racing how was that transition and what what keeps you here in the states the uh, adaptation was uh, not that simple. Uh, I came to the U.S. with very limited English, uh, mm-hmm. even though I had been I had been preparing for uh, racing outside France for a long time. I, I took uh, advanced English uh, lessons at home, uh, summer school. I did everything I could to learn good English, but it was still limited. So 2006 was tough. Uh, left my family, my girlfriend at the time for for the U.S. Uh, lost left. All my friends are home as well and uh, came and rented an apartment, rented my couch and renting the, rented a TV. And quite frankly, I thought, you know, if it worked, I would get another year. Uh, but if it didn't work, then I would probably go back to France. But um, the style of racing, the way the fans hang out around the racetrack and, and the relationship with the drivers, the atmosphere I really liked. Uh, I felt very free in the US and I felt very uh, respected as a driver and it gave me um, confidence in who I was and uh, expressing myself as me so uh, you know I'm going to spare you the details but I just thought okay it's interesting I didn't feel any pressure whatsoever I just felt like all I had to do was the best I could Um, so that whole 2006 year was full focus on racing nothing else and it worked. Um, but uh, I've enjoyed the U.S. since. You know, I've been grateful uh, about coming to this country and having so much success and having such a great life that uh, I've had opportunities to go back to Europe, but I decided not to take it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and uh, I certainly, uh, having the chance 
to have meet you in person in the past pre-COVID and uh, just seeing you as a driver on camera, everything else, I will certainly say as a representative of the United States that I'm very, very happy that you stayed here. I think you're a fantastic um, part of the racing community here. And it's just been great to, to watch you compete. And one of the things I love about you the most is you definitely have that like pure love for the sport. It, it's, it's, there's no doubt that it's in you. And you said it right at the top that Formula One was your original idea, but more than anything, you just wanted to race. And that shows in, in all the different types of racing you've competed in over the years. Yes, it's, um, it's, a, it's a deep passion. And I had nobody in my family that was in racing. You know, I start from zero. My dad obviously loved cars and taught me how to drive at a really young age on a, on a parking lot. It's a really strange thing that, you know, when we discovered I had talent, I was, uh, I was seven years old driving go-kart. And, um, you know, it, it started from there. But uh, my family certainly did not push for me to, uh, to become professional. And I think that's why it worked, because I, I had to try harder uh, to make it happen. So uh, it's been an interesting time full of tough times, um, but uh, that's what makes you stronger. So now you're in this kind of new transition period where you had a several seasons with Penske, I believe six seasons with Penske, and now you're transitioning to a new team after developing those deep relationships with all the folks at Penske, the engineers, uh, the mechanics, everyone. Does it help that... As you transition to this new team, you're kind of reunited with an old Penske teammate in Elio Castroneves? Yeah, absolutely. It helps because we know each other well, we, we work together, and our personalities complete each other really well. So uh, there's also the fact that we've both had all the success that we wanted. We still want more, but there's no ego. You know, there's, we don't fight to be the number one on the team. We, we both want to be equal we both want to push the team to become the best they can be and that's to the benefit of the team uh, and ourselves so it, it's quite exciting um, to be restarting together um, with Elio being teammates and um, it's super fresh I mean we he wants to win his fifth time uh, Indianapolis and I just want <laughs> to keep, keep going and keep winning so um, we're both pushing and it's fun. Does it feel good to be the the young one on the team again is that nice? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I've, I've never told myself I wasn't the youngest and uh, <laughs> Tower is older than me so he was older than me anyways at Penske but you know it's interesting it, it's and I talk with Elio a lot about this but age to me is just a number because you know I had a son 10 months ago congratulations and, and he makes me feel way younger than I ever was before <laughs> uh, you know I feel re-energized mostly because of him uh, it's given me an extra motivation to uh represent the family even better um so to me it's a number i i feel like as long as my body and my mind keep sharp then i can do this forever so um you know i i i feel like my experience today is compensating also for a lot of stuff and it's uh it's becoming an interesting time for me yeah well absolutely and uh, i'll just as a brief aside my son is five now and uh it it, it the experience only gets richer uh, and, and it's never boring. Oh my God. It's never boring. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. And so, uh, do you feel like you're relatively comfortable 
at uh, Meyer Shank Racing as a result of no ego and like, or are there things that the way Meyer Shank Racing operates that are a little bit fundamentally different that you have to get used to? It's very different to where I was with Tim Penske. It's extremely different. Well, the, I mean, sorry to interrupt. I mean, it must be a smaller outlet as a starting is, place, right? It is it's very different because you're comparing Tim Penske that has, I believe, 54 years of experience to Myshank Racing that has, and I'm talking about IndyCar only, they only have three, three full season. This is the third full season that they're doing only. Yeah, yeah. So there's a lot to learn. There's a lot to develop. Um, there's a lot of process to put in place. But they have such great talent. They've hired Mike Schenk as a as a talent for hiring talent. Um, <laughs> he's hired really good people. Jim Meyer behind him is extremely good businessman, as we know with SiriusXM before when he was a CEO. Um, and we have very strong partners like AutoNation, uh, Arctic Wolf that just came on board, and Honda. So uh, it's it's a really strong outfit that is very young. And they want the experience of guys like me and Elio to create the foundation of what could become a top team. And yeah. uh, that's really exciting to me. And I feel it. I feel very involved in everything. And it passion, it's a passion of mine. It fascinates me. Yeah. And I think I, I, I can certainly understand that appeal of you were racing with Penske as it was in its 50th year. And now, just as you say, now you're at a team just into its third so you're really at the ground floor of this team's development and uh, getting to see it grow as you're a part of it. And I, I certainly can understand that appeal. Um, one of the big parts about it is you've shifted from Chevrolet power to Honda. But in a way, that's kind of a reunification as well, because um, you raced a lot of Honda sports cars um, when you were at American Le Mans Series and then more recently um, uh, the DPI car with uh, Penske. So what's it like kind of being reattached to the Honda brand, uh, one that you raced for for a long time? It's, it's a lot of fun. It's a lot of people that I already knew of. Um, I see the philosophy of uh, Honda racing as not change. It's only developing and improving. Uh, and I feel at home with them. I feel very uh, valued for my feedback, uh, which makes me feel really great and gives me a, a great deal of confidence um, in what I'm doing. And they're always seeking for whatever is next. Um, and that's what racing is about. So uh, I'm, I'm really enjoying uh, being where I'm at with them right now and, and being reunited. Obviously, I have a long, long history with them from Pike Peak in a minivan to driving every <laughs> single uh, Acura uh, prototype that they've ever developed. Um, not ever, not ever, but since since 2008. So it's been uh, been really cool to reunite that history. But I'm obviously super grateful for, for what happened with Chevrolet because they gave me the 500 and, and the championship. So I will never forget that. And, uh, and I'm grateful for that competition between the two because without the competition... It wouldn't. Have, my career would probably not be at this point now. So, um, so I'm very grateful for all of it. Yeah, absolutely. Now, uh, you mentioned uh, Sebastian Bourdais kind of being an encouraging force early in your career to come to the United States. Have you developed any kind of a relationship <clears throat> with uh, Roman Grosjean? I mean, he's technically Swiss, but obviously on the French side. Um, 
have you found a kind of a kinship with him? Yes, well, I've raced with Romain since we're kids. Uh, we raced. Uh, <laughs> okay, fair we started, enough. Yeah, we actually started racing. Uh, we're close in age, so we we we're racing Formula Renault uh, back in France. He, um, we were competitors at a young age, um, and uh, he hasn't changed in his style. He's always been the driver that he is, like yeah, taking a lot of risks and being very aggressive, super fast. Um, so there's no evolution there, uh, but he's evolved a lot as a driver. He's very competitive, um, and it's going to be interesting to see what he does. It, it's it's awesome to have him. He's bringing such a following from Formula One. Um, I think it's it's great for the sport. Do we have a, a personal relationship? When I would say yes, when he called me um, when he was trying to come to IndyCar to ask me some advice, I gave him all the advice I could. Uh, and I was so happy to see him come over. So um, now. We're competitors on the racetrack, you know. It's it's difficult to be best friends. Uh, yeah, oh, sure. And that's thing that personally, it's super difficult to me because a friend to me uh, is it's everything. So uh, so you can't, you know, step on the throat of your friends when you need to. Uh, <laughs> in racing, you have to. So. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's where yeah, we are. It, it, <laughs> it's it's fascinating because you know it's a weird combination. You know, IndyCar is such a small fraternity. And I would imagine to have, you know, a common language to be able to uh, kind of come to together uh, would be a nice bond to grow. But at the same time, at least for a couple hours on a Sunday, that's he's an enemy just like anybody else. Well, that, that's what's tough mentally. Mentally speaking, it's really difficult to switch like that. You know, it's um, I, I prefer to keep my guards and, and keep my distance uh, to be ready for the fight. Uh, you know, my life is based around racing. I have some, uh, some amazing friends that uh, I, I can't be, I can't say how lucky I am to have so, those good friends. Um, but to me on the racetrack, it's, 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 it's competition and, and you just can't be friends. It's my personality doesn't work that way, I guess. But uh, I see other drivers being super friendly and uh, going on vacation together. I don't think I can do that. <laughs> <laughs> well, now that you have a 10-month-old, you won't have time for it anyway. Um, a good excuse now. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Looking just holistically at it, um, obviously you want to stay in IndyCar for quite some time, I can only assume. Do you look back and do you have any, I don't even want to say regrets, but do you ever kind of have any inklings or desire what life would have been like if it were Formula One instead? Or are you just very happy with what you've accomplished in IndyCar and, and, uh, and very happy with the decisions you made? Look, I have, I have absolutely no regrets on my, my career and my decisions. The only regret I have is when I was 18, I had an opportunity um, with Renault and um, mm. I was too young. Uh, like I said, my family was not in racing. I didn't have a dad telling me how to prepare uh, what I needed to do. I had parents that were telling me, you've got to have school and you got you can do racing on the side, but that's a, yeah. that's a, that's a, that's a hobby. Okay. Um, and then we became too, we became serious too late. So I missed that chance that I had uh, because I was too raw at the time. And I was 18. When you look at Verstappen, who's already, you know, he's a champion in Formula One at 21. So um, I lost a lot of time uh, because of my surrounding, uh, but that's okay. It's just, my life is like that. You can't regret that. It's just, it was shaped differently. Uh, now I'm super proud of what I've accomplished. The fact that I, I 
I had the balls. I had the balls to leave my country and come here and 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 take on this huge country and and this new uh, culture. You know, so um, there was a lot to it, and um, I climbed the mountain, and uh, and I'm I'm happy to be on top of it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, as you said, you literally climbed Pikes Peak with us, so uh, you're definitely you're definitely there. And just as you said yourself, you know, your father wasn't Jasper Stappen. Your father wasn't connected to Formula One in such a way that you could get that glide path that Max got. Just, you know, it, when you're in racing and you're not connected to it via family, that is an extra step that you have to overcome. Absolutely. Um, last question. You've been very gracious with uh, what you're saying about the United States. I'm going to challenge that a little bit. How is the food here compared? Like, I'm curious... As a fan of French cooking, um, I'm curious, if are you working to up Meyer Shank's food truck game? Are you working to improve the, the baguette recipe? What, what have you got for me? Well, listen, Jason Givens, who's uh, our team manager, he, he, you know, we've had this conversation. I said, listen, I can't do burrito at lunch. <laughs> uh, I mean, during a test session of eight, you drive, we're driving eight hours on the racetrack, full full on I said I can't do that my stomach cannot stomach it so can we do something about the food can you give me pasta at lunch and uh, <laughs> we had this on the first day and, and I felt like I was being very uh, demanding but uh, <laughs> I got the right food man I mean I, I need the right fuel for my body so I think I'm upping their game yes at this point but I think they're all gonna enjoy it <laughs> <laughs> yes it benefits everyone I I I I couldn't argue with that, certainly. However, I did bring donuts to the race team the other day, so I'm guilty of that. <laughs> well, uh, Simon Paginot, I we will be paying close attention to uh, how you and, indeed, the team Meyer Shank develops in IndyCar, and I'm sure you'll be jumping in any race seat um, where there's an opportunity to jump into. We'll be paying attention to that as well. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Yeah. Just great, great man. I, I, it's always a pleasure to speak with Simon Paginot, and there was no exception this time around. Uh, and, and I'm really excited to see how the second phase of his IndyCar career goes, or maybe I should say third or perhaps fourth phase, depending on how you do the math. Yeah, I mean, there was a time where he, he was, you could almost say, dominant, wasn't it? I mean, he just seemed to win everything for, for a while. So you wonder if he can recapture that type of form in a, in a new team. So uh, it'd be fascinating to see how he goes. Absolutely. Um, And it's not just IndyCar and Formula One. In fact, it is also going to be sports cars because we have the 12 Hours of Sebring coming up also on that weekend. And the race itself is actually the day before. It is uh, the 19th for the 12 Hours of Sebring. But that we're going to see the IMSA teams back up and running again. And that's always a great, great race because it's 12 hours, not 24 like Daytona. But... Sebring is fast, bumpy, and punishing. So that is a really hard track to last 12 hours on. Yeah, it's a classic sports car event, isn't it? Always uh, for, for a long time, decades, that's been running. It's always sorts them in from the boys, as you said. Some cars just can't handle handle the, uh, the rough nature of that circuit. And it's not just IMSA. WEC will also be there. So it's going to be a super sports car weekend. They're doing 1,000 miles for uh, the WEC and so we're, it's just going to be crazy full, interesting weekend down in Florida for sports cars. Cool. 
Is it going to be as cold as it was at Daytona? <laughs> I, I, I imagine that most everyone hopes not. I mean, it was seriously <laughs> approaching freezing uh, at Daytona, which for a race tire, oy, I mean, that's just, that's just brutal. But yeah, so uh, the, thousand, the thousand miles of Sebring will be on Friday for WEC, and then 12 hours of Sebring will be on Saturday. Cool. Sounds like a fun event. Yeah, yeah. And finally, there's something even more exciting than all of those things combined. My latest YouTube video. And, oh, Chris, this one is a stonker. I did a fuel economy test, and I put cameras up and recorded it. And I even got uh, my Microsoft Excel out and uh, crunched a few numbers. And the, the basis of the test was, how does speed affect your fuel economy rating on the interstate? So I did this... 40 plus mile loop and I did it at three speeds 60 miles an hour 70 miles an hour and 80 miles an hour and uh, you know the results were how did that hurt your fuel economy how did that help your time and you know as you can imagine the faster you go there's some diminishing returns well presumably you got stopped by the state police because you were speeding Robin no, I never speed. No, 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 never. I, I went, uh, I misspoke. I went 60 kilometers an hour, <laughs> 70 kilometers an hour, and 80 kilometers an hour. <laughs> Got it. Um, so what was do your you final... Know, do you want to know that even when I was set, cruise set to 80, I was getting passed a lot. <laughs> so, <laughs> of course you were. Yeah. yeah. Um, what was your car for this challenge? Oh, I'm so glad you asked. It was a 2022 Lexus NX350 all-wheel drive luxury. It was a very nice car to use for this test. And we saw some quite significant differences between 60 miles an hour and 80 miles an hour. But it was a very comfortable car throughout the test. But this was a V6 internal combustion engine or? This was the non-hybrid. It's No, it's not. It So this is the non-hybrid. But the, the, just like the Germans, uh, the, um, the number after the letters do not refer it, to displacement. It is yeah, a 2.3-liter turbocharged okay. four-cylinder in this car. It's actually the smallest displacement engine you can get because the NX250 and all the hybrids use a 2.5-liter engine, but it's a non-turbocharged 2.5-liter. Okay. And so what was the result? At 80 miles per hour, you were able to consume less cheeseburgers. Um, then when you were driving at 60 miles per hour, is that, is that the finding? <laughs> I've got a pair of juicy driving suit uh, waiting for you over here. No, it's so, yes, I, I, I was able to consume the same number of cheeseburgers for each run, which is zero, but um, I, I achieved um, uh, more than 25% better fuel economy at 60 miles an hour than I did at 80 miles an hour. But presumably, the driving experience was harder because you were being passed by everybody and, and blocking half the highway. 60, <laughs> 60, miles miles an hour was, hour. 60 miles an hour was a bit painful. I mean, I was passed by probably three or four semi-trucks. Yeah. So, yeah. Or what would you call them? Lorries? So, it's okay. worth a watch is the point. And for now, I want to thank you for listening. Please take a moment to review us on iTunes or Spotify or YouTube or wherever you get our podcasts. Please leave comments on the episode of your choice by going to funwithcars.com. As always, I can be reached at feedback at funwithcars.com. Tweet us at fun underscore with underscore cars. 
And check out our Facebook page at facebook.com slash FWCarsChris. Formula One's back. Yes. I'm Robin Warner. Goodbye.